Coming to you from the front lines of America's fight for freedom, it's Matt and Brett Doster with America in View. What this world needs is a few more redheads. So people ain't afraid to take a stand. What this world needs is a little more respect for the Lord and the law and the working man. And we can use a little peace and satisfaction. Some good people up front take the lead. A little less talk and a little more action. And a few more rednecks is what we need. Matt and Brett Doster back with you again where we are starting a third great awakening of the woke in America with truth, the Constitution, and a little redneck common sense. Phenomenal week for those of us who are political scientists because we got to start not only with um, the Iowa caucuses in uh, the National Arena map, but also got to see some of the special elections around the country, including right here in the great state of Florida. Uh, what in the world happened in Iowa this past week? It was amazing. Yeah, to talk to everybody who was there, it was bitterly cold. I think that was the main thing that a lot of people were taking away from there. Um, what do you think about the results, Brad? It, it kind of broke the way a lot of people were predicting. There were some naysayers. There were some um, disagreements about what people thought would happen in, in uh, the second place position. But Trump exceeded 50%. DeSantis was second kind of settled some debates. Uh, where do things stand now? Yeah, if I could burnish my own credentials here, brother. Uh, I served as senior advisor on three different presidential campaigns, and I have walked through the process of the early state primaries now. Uh, it seems like uh, over about a decade and a half, and I've seen a little bit of everything. Uh, the thing that was fascinating to me about this is because I thought there were two ways it could have gone. One is either the weather would have kept what I would call less passionate uh, conservatives at home just because they didn't want to deal with weather. Uh, and that could have created potentially a little bit more energy for the DeSantis uh, social conservatives out there in Iowa and maybe had made that ar- uh, margin a little closer. Or you could have just seen rural conservatives and even social conservatives across the state begin to break back toward Trump as being their guy at least until uh, he proves that he's just not the guy anymore. It seems to me that it broke heavily in Trump's favor, and and he is in, I, I think, the undeniable poll position that unless, again, as I said three or four weeks ago, unless there's a cardiac arrest event in his life, he is going to be the nominee for the Republican Party. Yeah, and uh, I think that the, uh, the weather um, ended up, probably turn, making turnout a little bit less. I think they were there was some surprise that turnout, I think it was a little over 100,000. The high water mark in Iowa apparently was about 180,000. So you definitely had fewer people showing up, whether it was the weather, whether it was people just kind of being tired of things or you know feeling like there was a foregone conclusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, some of the people I talked to said it was like 18 below with a wind chill of like 40 below. I mean, these kind of yeah. numbers are just mind-blowing, right, for us warm-blooded Floridians. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I thought it was cold here this week, but, you know, nothing like that, right? Yeah. But I, I also think when you live in cold weather, you're used to it, right? And if you really want to go do something, you're going to go do it. And so, you know, I, we just got a, we got a result that says a lot of what you just said. I mean, it, Trump is is uh, the Republicans' choice right now. Something might change that. There might be a change of circumstances. You have pundits and some of the candidates 
sort of openly uh, talking about the need for a person in the number two position, you know, in case something happens. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it doesn't seem like the voters in the Republican Party are looking anywhere but Trump right now. I was so fascinated watching the coverage of Iowa. That was sort of, first of all, I had probably, I don't know, 35 conversations with friends of ours who were on the ground there, and they were dispersed through all the camps in Iowa. But uh, I was watching as the returns came in, I was jumping back and forth between CNN, MSNBC, Fox, and then even some of the the other uh, shows. And uh, it was fascinating to me to see how even hmm, some of the commentators on Fox News were really trying to pump up Nikki Haley. But let me just tell you, I think it's fascinating. Iowa is a very conservative state. You cannot win Iowa without running on a grassroots platform, a very conservative platform, and spending time with those people. And these people that turned out in the in the caucuses, they represented a very conservative base, very conservative. Uh, if you look at the numbers, Trump, DeSantis, and Vivek split that base up. Obviously, Trump got the lion's share, but I would say about 85%, 86% of that caucus vote were strong conservatives. Nikki Haley, uh, people keep pointing to her and saying, oh my goodness, you know, she's the next uh, person who can really take Trump on. She's sealed out. I think she can get her 16 to 20%. That's about what the moderate wing is of the Republican base. And I don't see her exceeding much of that anywhere else except for New Hampshire. It is striking how openly she and her camp are campaigning for uh, crossover vote, for moderate vote, for people, you know, telling people to switch parties uh, or in some of these states like New Hampshire, where it's not the, the voter registration isn't an issue as far as what, who you can vote for. Um, and there, there's really not making any bones about it. Uh, even even their uh, fundraising and all is there's uh, prominent Democrats coming in supporting her. I think she's fallen into the trap of being the like the game plan candidate. Like, hey, we're going to be more viable in a general election. We're going to be more appealing to women. Mm-hmm. It's all the same sort of thing that you hear in a lot of these races, but it just doesn't pan out in a Republican primary. No. I mean, the the Republican primary voter is looking for common ground on key um, conviction issues. Mm-hmm. What do you think the size and scope of government should be? What do you think uh, about the, um, you know, is is uh, is the human race designed by God and intended to do a certain thing, or is it just kind of like uh, open season on whatever behavior you want to pursue? I mean, these kind of big dividing lines on what drives evangelical voters, what drives um, business-minded people, and they want to see that you've got core convictions, and I'm not sure she's getting that anymore. That's the key phrase, core convictions. I've said this a number of times to many of our friends, many who are in the donor community who always want to make the best business decision related to candidates. Well, who's best position to win? You know, who, who has the best name ID? Who has this? Who has that? And I always say to them that they just are completely out of touch with the Republican base because the Republican base, everyone wants to win. Okay, no one wants to lose, but the Republican base would rather lose with someone who shares their ideals and who is above the corruption of the process than to win with someone who's going to sell them out two days after they're in office. Of course. Yeah, you don't. I mean, if if you betray any kind of mercenary instincts, then that sends the message to your supporters. 
you might be next. You know, you might be the next group that that gets, uh, as you say, kind of sold out for the next opportunity. And and see, and and to your point, that's what Nikki Haley's doing right now. I mean, she is making the play big time. That she's the moderate. That she can appeal to women. That she can appeal to uh, what you would call the um, the donor community. Maybe more focused on softer issues. Uh, all the people that don't just want to see a Biden Trump ticket all over again. And she's lambasting Trump as being old news, but it's all within this cloak of I'm the moderate, I can win. It has nothing to do with core conviction. And ultimately what we're seeing, people have been talking about this all year, but what what we're really seeing is having two incumbent presidents in the same race, which exactly. is just something we haven't, I mean, we have not encountered that in our lifetime. Um, and it's a, it's a unique situation. Uh, I think there was a time after the 20, briefly after the 2022 elections, where Trump's star had faded, um, there were some election losses, and so there was this idea that that uh, the base wanted to move on to somebody else, and that that storyline's not that's it's not current anymore. And so you're seeing, yeah, it's basically two incumbent presidents running against each other in the same election. I will say one thing: we, two weeks ago, we had Mitch Brown on with Signal. He was the and their firm, Signal, is was the polling firm for Vivek Ramaswamy. And remember, we asked him at the end of at the end of the interview if it were possible oh, yeah. for someone to beat Trump, and yeah. he said no. I think they already knew they were getting out after Iowa because I just don't think that Mitch would have been so forthcoming if it's they didn't point. have some inkling about it. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah, uh, they knew they were toast, uh, and now Vivek is full throated in his support for Trump, which I think is just adding to Trump's momentum yeah. as he comes out of New Hampshire. Well, and then there's this other factor. You know, it was all about like, is Trump going to get more than 50% in Iowa? And we've seen this in local elections here where there's a runoff system, right? And if somebody, you can see somebody get 48% of the vote in the first round. And a lot of times in these small Southern local elections, that person's almost destined to lose the runoff because the other 52% say, well, we don't want this guy. But Trump, that has not happened with Trump. He, he, his support has always grown once these candidates fall, um, drop out. And in, in your case, maybe intentionally that Ramaswamy's plan was to, you know, cotton on and become part of that Trump phenomenon. Let's keep talking about this after we get out of the break. I want to talk about my frustration, probably a little bit of your frustration, and maybe our audience's frustration about issues that have not been debated well during this presidential preference primary process stick with us to the next segment we're going to have a special interview by edward graham uh, son of franklin graham in the third segment stick with us don't go anywhere america in view will be right back freeing the woke from their liberal chains it's matt and brent doster with america in view all right, we're having this great discussion today about the fallout from the Iowa caucuses. And, Matt, we were just talking about the fact that Nikki Haley has really held on to the moderate side of the base and uh, maybe is beginning to try to shift this debate in a way that I'm not entirely comfortable. I think a lot of our audience would not entirely be comfortable with it because I feel like it's pushing the Republican narrative in a direction that I don't like because it feels like Democrat light or diet Democrat, diet socialist, whatever you want to call it. We're going to talk, by the way, in the third segment today, uh, we're going to do an interview with Edwin uh, Graham, who is the COO of Samaritan's Purse. Uh, he is the son of 
uh, Franklin Graham, the grandson of Billy Graham. I think we're going to really enjoy that interview. So, so yeah, really looking forward to that. Yeah, it, it should be good. But anyway, let's get back to talking about this this sort of leftward tilt in some of the debate where Nikki Haley is trying to take this party right now. We had a great interview with uh, Grover Norquist last week. I really enjoyed that. And we, we also heard him speak while he was in Tallahassee. Um, he made a great point about the impossibility of compromise when you have two groups that are moving in opposite directions. Oh, yeah. The example he used was like the Nixon-McGovern or Nixon-LBJ era where there was kind of buy-in for big government, great society-type concepts. It was just a question of how we're going to do it or how quickly we're going to do it or how far we're going to go. And in that kind of a situation – there's room for compromise because you can say, well, let's just do this over here and that over there. And we're, we're kind of all on the same basic page as contrasted with groups, organizations, movements moving in opposite directions, which is more what we saw with Ronald Reagan and, and uh, trying to return to free market principles, lower taxation and so on. I think that's what we get into in these kind of political uh, contests in which there's somebody, a candidate comes along who thinks, well, you know, I'm nicer, I've got smoother edges than the other guy. Somehow I just need to convince the middle that I'm more palatable, that they could be more comfortable, that I'm not going to push too hard. You know, maybe I'll be kind of pro-life, but I'm not going to really try to change the laws too much. We've seen those kinds of moves. Or, you know, maybe we want less, less taxes, but we still want all the same entitlements and welfare programs and all that kind of thing. I think the phrase you're looking for here is status quo. The yeah, problem is yeah. status quo right now with American socialism, or at least our style and brand of socialism, equals degrading the country, bankruptcy, weakening the military, and the list goes on and on. Right. And I think I think Haley herself, I mean, she I think she's the kind of person that has experience at the UN, so she makes that sort of part of her resume. Um, I think she's the kind of politician that if if a message were working, she'd probably go with it. Um, I don't I don't think it's based on you know some sort of like an actual plan that was put together. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in a, in a different race, in a different circumstance, we might be proved wrong, but that just is the way it seems right now. What I think for the party at large, or for the movement at large, for conservatives at large, it is really dangerous when you say when you, when you kind of like appropriate the talking points of the left but then try to get there with some kind of conservative idea or free market principles. Mm-hmm. Because what ends up do, happening is you can't get there, right? right? That's you, right. You can't create panacea, the, the thing, the sort of like fairy tale world that lo, the left wants. And in the process, you set yourself up as dishonest because you're, you're using these kind of superficial talking points, um, but you're not delivering and they can kind of tell that. And so then they, they call you out for it. Like, oh, you said, you know, you want to help poor people, but you voted against, Medicaid expansion or you, you know, voted against the farm bill or whatever, Right. instead of just being unapologetic and saying, we believe that the free market creates more wealth than the left, the left's ideas. Right. And everybody's going to be better under a free market system, even if the wealth isn't as evenly distributed as the lefty kind of socialist mindset wants. Well, here's, here's the bigger point. There's always going to be inequities of wealth. The question is, do you want a federal government bureaucrat determining those inequities, or would you rather have the invisible hand of the free market? I would much rather take my chances with the hand, the invisible hand of the free market because I can believe that if I work hard and come up with some good ideas and I'm responsible, that eventually there should be some gain in my life. 
if I subject my life to a federal bureaucrat, I am assured of either slavery or failure. And not only does that federal bureaucrat, you, you don't want to subject yourself to the choices that person is making, but then you also have to deal with the reality that that system is going to suppress wealth creation across the board. So not only are you not going to like his choices, you're going to have less. Everybody's going to have less under that under that system. I mean, it's the failure of communism and socialistic systems, which is on full display with history. We have 100 years of, you know, Lenin and everything that came after that, Mao Zedong and, and et cetera, you know, Fidel Castro. These economies did not work under the communistic socialistic system. I mean, they never you, do. You see in China now this kind of hybrid that they have where it's very authoritarian, but they are allowing some free market just because they can tell it works. Uh, but you still have you know, terrible situations in all the other communist bloc countries. Yeah, until you live in an apartment building where they decide that they need to lock the door so everyone burns up because the fire trucks can't get yeah. there. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's a tragic, tragic slavery that they live under. Uh, we're going to get into this interview with Edward Graham in a few minutes. He's the COO of Samaritan's Purse. Uh, so I want to just kind of take the the uh, conversation in a little slightly different direction, Matt, which is to say that um, a lot of the entitlements that we debate now, as you notice, there was some uh, special town halls that were set up in Iowa before the caucuses that were just going to focus on women's issues, which always drives me crazy. What is a women's issue versus a man's issue? Uh, you know, and we can maybe go through that later on, but it's euphemism for abortion, but uh, yes. And universal childcare and, and uh, a lot of other entitlements that the federal government should not be engaging in. But going back to the original constitutional framework of this country, I could actually make the argument that if you want to have all those entitlements, sure, do it at the state level. Do it at the local level. Let them fail. But the federal government has no authority within its basic document to provide these kinds of services. It has zero authority uh, beyond what we've sort of taken or as it has accrued that authority over the, the decades and years. And now uh, we are having these, these ridiculous debates, even in the Republican Party, among Republican presidential candidates about light socialism. And it just drives me crazy. Right. It's like everybody wants a plan. That you don't, you know, it's like, well, we need more whatever paternity leave or, you know, we need federal guarantees on various programs. And you're right. It's an abandoning of what should be a distinctive between the right and the left. America, you know, people have this debate, is America a Christian country? Is it not a Christian country? Look, we, we never had a state religion that says we are a Christian country, but this country would not exist but for the Protestant Reformation. It would not exist but for the migration coming out of Western Europe for religious freedom. And you have you know, great quotes from people like Alexis de Tocqueville, who said, America is great because America is good. It had a sense of morality the Christianized America, the leaders of this country, designated certain powers to the government to provide as much freedom for as many as they could. And therefore, there was no allowances made for government to engage in entitlements or charitable work or welfare work that was left to, let's just call it the nonprofit sector or the individual sector. And so for decades, more than decades, uh, for 150 years, until we got to the, uh, the bigger parts of the New Deal and the Great Society, anytime there was a crisis in this country, 
it was generally taken care of by uh, social services at a volunteer level and uh, by the church. And unfortunately, you know, now we're in a situation where we have essentially allowed government to take over those those functions, and it is bankrupting the country and putting us in a far weaker position. You're right. And, you know, what I would say about America as a Christian nation, America is definitely a nation of worshipers. It's right in the Constitution, right in the Bill of Rights. And while there was very important freedoms allowed for um, differences of belief, differences of faith— uh, belief in God was always right at the center of of our nation, and a sense of duty, right? Yeah, a sense of duty is a is a great point as well. Um, so the unfortunately, and it really did seem to start with um, FDR and the Great Depression, and then really went on overdrive with LBJ and the Great Society. There was a major shift in which charity and, and philanthropic work went away from communities of faith and became seen as something that should be guaranteed and provided by government, which has a two-pronged problem. On the one hand, it's inefficient, and on the other hand, it uh, destroys freedoms, and it changes the the sort of scope and caliber of the American people. Well, before we finish this conclusion in the next uh, segment, we're going to be talking to Edward Graham of the Samaritan's Purse, who's going to talk to us about functions done right, separate from government, um, a, a, so, a social ministry, a Christian ministry that does it right. And then I think in the fourth segment, Matt, we can finish this conversation just evaluating what he said in light of free market principles and the Constitution. I hear Never fear. Matt and Brett are here. Or at least they will be. America in View will be right back. Where we still don't understand the insanity of the woke. It's Matt and Brett Doster with America in View. Well, audience, let me tell you, we've had some special guests in 2023 and have already started off the year in 2024 with uh, some phenomenal guests, in our opinion. But today we have a special treat. Uh, not just because of the organization that he represents, but also because of the family that he represents, because of the faith and what it means to the country. We've got Edward Graham on the line with us. Uh, Edward is the uh, son of Franklin Graham. He is the grandson of Billy Graham, and he is the chief operating officer of Samaritan's Purse. Edward, thank you for joining us today. Hey, Brett, thanks for having me. I appreciate it very much. It's been uh, really interesting to kind of watch uh, how uh, your ministry at Samaritan's Purse has evolved over the years. But uh, I have to forewarn you, uh, my brother Matt and I are both Citadel graduates. I think we're a little bit ahead of you. And so anytime we have a ring bearer on the uh, phone, we have to just quickly ask you, and acknowledge, first of all, acknowledge your uh, service to the country, but ask you, uh, did you feel that your service in the uh, in the army prepared you uh, for your work at Samaritan's Purse? Yeah, you know, I, I'm the kid that grows up and I had two dreams. Uh, one was to be an army ranger, and one was to go to West Point. Then when I found out West Point was an engineering school, I was like, nope. <laughs> but I went to Liberty actually for one year, and then I just realized I wasn't living my dream. So I started all over and went to West Point. But it, yeah, my time there at the academy, my time in special operations of the 75th Ranger Regiment. Being able to be decisive, make hard decisions, you know, take input, listen, see the things around you, and then act. That's what we do here um, in, a, in a, you know, different kind of scale, different purpose. But once again, I'm surrounded by talent. 
And just like I was in the study for the Ranger Regiment, um, I'm surrounded by talent here. It's just making sure you get the right people at the right place and just kind of let them go, let them do their job. Edward, let's talk a little bit about Samaritan's Purse now. Uh, anytime there's a major disaster, it seems like you guys show up, you're on the ground with real-time assistance for material needs. And uh, we've certainly been in Florida, in our neck of the woods, helping people recover from hurricanes and other disasters. Talk to us a little bit about that. How does the organization decide where to go? How long do you stay and, and all that? You know, people ask us all the time, um, you know, when it comes to disasters here in the United States, a lot of that comes down to our North American ministries, our, our vice president we have down there, Luther Harrison. He's been with Dad for a long time, has my father's trust. But when a, when a storm comes in and it destroys areas, especially tornadoes and hurricanes, and I don't know why it is, it always seems to hit those that are in the ditches of the world or those with the least amount of resources and money. A lot of times um, uh, mobile homes, low-end communities are ones that are hit and affected. When those when those types of communities are hit, that's where we go. Uh, we're not going to respond to areas where, you know, the, the beach homes were hit, you know, the, the, the third and fourth vacation home type areas, um, the large mansion homes in the suburb of Atlanta. Those people have insurance. We go to people that um, can't serve and help themselves and that need to be loved on. And we want to work to the local church always. So that's how we go. We, we go to places, too, when my dad points his finger and says, go, we go, and whether that's international or domestic. Um, but here is those, you know, disenfranchised areas. Uh, just recently, this past week, we had a tornado hit just in the neighboring county here where we are in Boone, North Carolina, in the mountains. Mm. And it hit a mobile home park. And so we've been down there and serving and loving in that community. It didn't get any news. Uh, cameras have no effect on where we go. We go to where God calls us to and where we can help those in the ditches. And we want to meet their immediate needs. We want to love on them, serve them, but we want to know that, let them know that Jesus has not forgotten them and has not forsaken them. Loves them so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross. And so that's why we go. I think we were so impressed uh, after the last hurricane that impacted the Florida Panhandle, which is where our broadcasting station is. We saw Samaritan's Burst come in, and to your credit, I mean, there were guys showing up with chainsaws, trucks, and you're right. They weren't going to the, the fancy beach areas. They were going places that were hard hit, and uh, it was just such a testimony, I think, to your work. Uh, you also do quite a bit of international work, and uh, as we've seen the world become a more dangerous place recently— I'm going to refrain from commenting on politics right now, but uh, obviously the Ukraine has been a hot spot. The latest attacks in Israel have been a hot spot, and you have engaged in those arenas as well. Tell us about that. Uh, and real quick, yes, we did go to Perry, Florida. I was down there myself and uh, with the Liberty students down there serving just right beside you also. Uh, hard hit and very low-income area, so praying for that area of Florida. So we're still there, actually. When the war in Ukraine first kicked off, uh, I was there, uh, I think the second week of the war, I went in where we tried to set up a hospital, where we did set up a hospital in Lviv. And we thought Lviv would be the new capital that Russia would roll through, and they were already around the gates of, of Kiev. Mm-hmm. Um, and they would, you know, that would collapse, and that would quickly become the new capital, and maybe we'd, you know, we'd shut down after two weeks there, and we'd be setting up a hospital in Poland, you know, across the border. I was wrong. Most of the world was wrong. Our U.S. You know, military was wrong. The, the Ukrainians stopped the Russians and pushed them back outside from their capital and redrew the lines along the eastern front. But we've been serving in Ukraine, whether medically, through hospitals, um, feeding distributions, through local churches. We've been feeding the, uh, the red zone area since the war started, uh, where there was no food and no access to food. We've been doing uh, warming shelter programs, you know, putting tarps and roofs back on homes blown out through artillery fire. 
putting stoves in for these uh, families that have no power uh, to keep them. You've, you've never experienced cold until you've been through a Ukraine winter. <laughs> it's a bitter cold. Um, but we do this all through the local church. You know, when the war happened, in, well, when the attacks happened in Israel, you know, they, Israel and Gaza had claimed to be at war for a long time, just like the Ukrainians had claimed to have been at for years. You know, such loss and destruction, such evil, uh, what mm. happened in Israel, and just the brokenness of these communities and what these families have gone through. Uh, Samaria's first response, and we, we can't be everywhere in the world, and we don't always get access because we are a Christian organization. It even says on our cargo planes, you know, when we land somewhere, serving in Jesus' name. But those aircraft have landed in con- countries all over the world, whether it be in the Middle East, they're in Israel too, uh, in Africa, um, Europe, they're in Ukraine. When there's a need or desire to serve and love those that are hurting, our aircraft can go. We can have a hospital anywhere, anywhere in the world in about 36 hours set up and going as long as we have approvals. We can send disaster relief material, plastic tarps clean drinking water, uh, water filtration systems like we did in Acapulco. In the world, the same time that Israel was happening, Acapulco happened in Mexico, and the world wasn't talking about it. No one mm-hmm. talked about Acapulco. But it was massive destruction. And we responded right away and working through the local churches, tarping roofs, um, doing debris removal, but also providing clean drinking water for tens of thousands of people in that city uh, through our massive filtration. We have desalinization units that can take salt water and make it clean drinking water. So, yeah, we go around the world. Actually, Samaritan's Purse was kind of first known to be an international relief organization. We started doing domestic when I was a child. Um, but we're not a—I don't want people to confuse us. We're not a charity. Um, we're, uh, there's really no difference between Samaritan's Purse and the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association that my grandfather started, my dad now runs. We share the gospel. We just have different tools and resources. We meet the immediate needs, just like the Good Samaritan. We want to serve and love those that are hurting in the ditches of the world. But the most important part of the story of the Good Samaritan is the debt was paid. I believe the debt is the blood of Jesus Christ, and I want those that are hurting and suffering to know that Jesus loves them. Edward, you're hitting a question I had kind of scripted out in my head almost word for word, so let me just segue off of that. That was the the very thing I think we wanted to emphasize is that not only do you meet short-term material needs, especially for people who are suffering, but you've got an eternal message that you want to share with people, and you know we really admire the organization and everything with your family that goes along with that. Can you talk a little bit like what happens if there is friction? If you have uh, a government or other stakeholders that, that are not happy with that kind of a message, do you try to persuade? Do you have diplomats? Do you end up just having to give up on some projects if you're not allowed in? Yeah, there, you know, sometimes we just can't get access because they know exactly who we are and what we stand for. But we've been in places and parts of the world, and, and again, most people think a Christian organization can't go into a Muslim country. That's not true. We've been invited in. Uh, we've been working in, um, you know, northern Iraq and Syria for years, you know, since uh, the Civil War started. We've been working with the Kurdish uh, government in the north, have a great relationship there. Because at the end of the day, they they know if we say we're going to do something, we'll do it. Mm-hmm. And they also know it's the quality of the care and that we'll love unconditionally. And, you know, we set up a hospital in Erbil during the, the clearing of ISIS from Mosul. They had no hospital there. You know, it's easy to treat the little girl that has shrapnel burns, a little baby down her back from the ISIS fighters where they threw a hand grenade on her. But then our nurses and doctors, after amputating that child's leg, walk down two tents to a tent with Peshmerga guards there, and then they treat the ISIS fighter that did it to her. And that's showing 
unconditional love in the name of Jesus Christ. And so many in these governments know that, and they know the quality of work. So often we get invitations in places you wouldn't think, um, you know, in conflicts like between Azerbaijan and Armenia. We're working on both sides of the conflict, serving through churches that are represented there. We're also in closed countries. Um, so we never hide who we are, and we're never ashamed of the gospel. Um, when we work somewhere, um, whether it's like a country in Turkey, we set up the earthquake, uh, hospital there after the earthquake, and that was massive destruction. Didn't get a lot of news here in the United States. This is Antioch and Antakya. This is the ancient Antioch from Scripture. The first church was there. Mm-hmm. Turkey invited us and let us come in. We're not registered there, but we work through our partners. We set up the hospital because when we left, we gifted that hospital to Turkey, and they're still using that. It, it destroyed their massive thousand-bed hospital right behind us. We were in the parking lot. That hospital still standing. They're now using as a woman's hospital. So often it's the understanding, we'll bring the equipment in, we will teach you how to run it, and then we'll hand it over to you. And so often that gives you access to places like this. Edward, I can't help but be reminded when you're talking about that of a story I heard uh, that back uh, when uh, communist Russia was still communist, Uh, They would have a number of uh, clubs and guilds, and even though Christianity was outlawed, they would always try to get a Christian to be the treasurer because they knew that he or she would not be stealing from the guild. You guys have developed this white hat reputation that now causes even secular uh, people to be fans and to fund you. I have to ask you this because this is one of the things that we've been talking about frequently kind of in the political sphere. It seems that over time, and I'm bringing this back, domestically now to the United States, it seems that over time, our culture has retreated from philanthropy. It's retreated from uh, Christians and from uh, your average citizen being engaged in charitable work. And we have almost outsourced that all to government now. Yeah. Talk to me about your efficiency, because when I see what FEMA is doing, when I see even what some of your competitor agencies are doing, which uh, or what I would call charities are doing, you guys are doing it so much better as a ministry. Uh, talk to me about that and why that's so. Yeah, I've been, you know, being all over the world, I always tell people, especially my time in the military, nobody, no no country around the world gives like the church in America. The, the church in America freely gives. And we're not the church of Samaritan, you know, at Samaritan's Purse. We're uh, a tool of the church um, to be used. The resources that God entrusts here are given, I call it by the widow's mind. We we take very little grants. That has a rule. We don't go below above like 12% on grants. So grants being like food from the World Food Program um, or, you know, a project rebuild from like the UN. We, we take very little money. Dad wants to be built off the trust of the widow, meaning in Scripture, the widow gave all she, she could. So we have gifts that's maybe $20 a month because that's all she can give. If we lose her trust, we cease to exist. Amen. That allows us to quickly respond and get into places because we have resources. We don't have to go raise money when a crisis happens necessarily. We'll do take money in to keep and stuff maintained, like what we're doing in Ukraine, because we've been there for a long time. Um, we'll, we'll continue to be there. But we have resources in these hospitals and this equipment in our warehouses. We can respond right away, and we do it through the local church, and we respond through the local church. You can trust that those resources are going to get to the people that it needs to most, whether it be food, medicine. You'd be, just for example, in Ukraine, you'd be so proud of what I've seen from day one, what the church was doing in Ukraine when they were fleeing these, the the human line at the border was two kilometers long. The car line was 14 kilometers long when I went there. Mm. The church is there feeding, transporting, 
people up from the train stations and moving them to the border. Since then, they've now been delivering food to the front lines. They put on flak jackets and they drive the food to these communities for us, and they're getting mortared and shelled at by the Russians. Like the church, I am so proud of. They were living what Scripture has told them to, to love their neighbors unconditionally. And so that's why we respond and always work through the local churches where we can. But here in the United States, if you want the government to fix something, I'll show you inefficiency. <laughs> the government to fix something, I'll show you bureaucracy. I'm, I love America. I'm a proud American. I fought for this country, and there is no better country to live. We are blessed, even with all the mess that we've got going on in this country, the hate. I am thankful for where I live. We've got great people here, but more importantly, I love the church around the world. And the church, you know, maybe look different, we think, from place to place. But when I go and worship in America and I go worship in Africa, it's the same worship and it's the same God. And it's his resources. If he gives us the resources out of the church here, he expects us to share it and help those hurting around the world. Edward, that's a powerful message. Uh, We really thank you for your time and for sharing your insights. Last question, how do people get involved and what, how can they get involved through, I assume, donations, volunteering? Tell us all about that. Yeah, first of all, I ask you to pray. Um, We got a lot going on. You go to SamaritansPurse.org and you can look on our websites and see all that's going on and the stories around the world. But we also want you to volunteer um, down in Florida, especially. Y'all Y'all love hurricanes, um, so, and there's and they're always coming. So we need volunteers to sign up and go, and it'll show where we're currently deployed and where you can be a part of, of volunteering. Um, and so that's the best way to get involved, prayer. And so look at those sites we're involved, pray for them, and find out how you can volunteer under the website. Edward, can't thank you enough for joining us today and for representing the uh, faith so well. Next time you get down to Perry, let us know, and we'll buy you some seafood down here in the Panhandle. We'll look forward to it. I appreciate the uh, the offer. You got it. Have a great day. Thanks for joining. Thank you. Appreciate it. Man, what an interview, Brett. That was great. It was really good to hear from Edward Graham, and uh, there's a lot more to talk about, which we're going to get to in the next segment. Bringing you right to the front line of liberal insanity. Watch out for that first step. It's a doozy. (laughs) And back again. America in View will be right back. On the front lines fighting the insanity of the woke, it's Matt and Brett Doster with America in View. Oh, that was an incredible interview, Matt. Uh, the last segment had Edward Graham on, the grandson of Billy Graham, the son of Franklin Graham, the COO of, of Samaritan's Purse. They're doing it right. They're absolutely doing it right. And they are taking, I think, a more traditional approach in America to how we should be engaged as individual citizens in doing um, social services functions, things that have been outsourced now because of the New Deal and the Great Society to the federal government, uh, something that has been just, I mean, torn up with inefficiency, with tyranny, with um, it's led to higher taxation, it's led to more regulation, it's led to all kinds of bad things which are bankrupting the country and causing problems. So, Matt, going back to the whole debate about the the federal government and what their role should be. Why are none of these Republican presidential candidates just looking at these questioners during the debates and the forums and saying, hey, that's not a role of the federal government. I'm going to shut it down. It's hard to say. I mean, I don't want to call anybody names, but, you know, sometimes you might wonder if it's just, you know, is, is there a lack of courage on that sort of thing? Is there a lack of clear understanding? Is there a lack of core conviction? 
Is it a tactical decision? I don't know. I mean, all of the above have kind of the same result and are not good for our message, for the conservative message. I mean, one of the things that Edward Graham said, which I loved, he said, look, we're not a charitable uh, organization. We're, you know, we're a gospel spreading organization, which is interesting because then they do what you would associate with charity really well. It's, it's almost like because that's not what they're setting out to do, um, they're really just trying to show Christian love and, uh, and to deliver a gospel message that it ends up, you know, they sort of set a model for the rest of the world. And they're able to go into these places, like he was saying, choose the places that need it the most and, uh, and really try to provide some relief. And I, I just wish, you know, there have been some people through the years that have been a lot more unapologetic and honest in their message. Somebody that I always enjoyed talking or hearing from was Ron Paul. Not necessarily because I agreed with him about everything, but he just wasn't a, he he didn't he didn't shy away from what he had to say, what he thought, and he had that more libertarian mindset. And he would talk about this isn't a place for government. Now you will hear some of these guys. They'll talk. They'll, they'll pick. I think what they know are their winning messages, like mm-hmm. hey, let's get rid of the Department of Education, maybe, or you know, hey, labor, let's, right? Like let's let's get rid of some kind of grants or something like that. Um, but yeah, they they are not taking on that core function of government and and trying to dismantle some of this. Uh, so, you know, back in the days of the Roman Empire, the emperors started this dangerous trend where they were giving to all of the Roman citizens free bread and circuses every day in the Colosseum. It was basically welfare uh, on steroids. And uh, almost every emperor after that got started had these various internal debates over how much bread and how many circuses. But they never ended the bread and circuses because I was part of their empowerment technique. And I fear that this country is on the same track. And the only thing I think is going to save us unless people start stepping up is complete and total bankruptcy. And it really frightens me for the country because we're going to see multi-generational wealth destroyed in one fell swoop if we do not have more courage by our elected officials and candidates. Yeah, just on a micro level, anybody who's ever maxed out a credit card can say with 100% certainty that they stopped borrowing on their credit card when the credit card company stopped letting them. Yeah. And we haven't hit that point. We haven't been able to do it um, with just wisdom and and decision-making on the part of our policymakers, our lawmakers, and our presidents. Mm Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's hard to understand how are we going to get to that point unless there is a bankruptcy and the sort of credit base of the world at large says we're not underwriting America anymore. I'm not saying we're going to solve it within the next uh, nine, 10 months of this presidential election, but I really do hope, I wish that someone like a Nikki Haley, whenever they start asking questions like, you know, since you're a woman, this is a women's issue, that she would kind of look back at them and say, hey, all issues are women's issues. Uh, all issues are men's issues. These are American issues. And there are some things that the federal government should not be involved in. That's exactly right. It's an insult to women everywhere. It's an insult to minority groups when you talk about some of these other um, narrower issues. It, all, of the, all of these issues count for everybody, and everyone should care about the larger picture. I, I think, unfortunately, we are in a phase of our country where it's all about, you know, what's in it for me, for my little group, and, uh, and that's what people are looking for. I wish Republican candidates were more courageous about um, countering that. And get our Republicans back to talking about strong military, no taxes, and a little bit of redneck common sense of pushing back against the establishment in Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for another great edition of America in View. Catch us on the website or our Facebook page, and we'll see you next week.
Thanks for listening to America in View. For more information, go to AmericaInView.com. Making their way to all.